This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Mana Rays. Do you love the feeling of soaking wet Ugg boots? Try Mana Rays today. Welcome to episode 82 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about Stormwater, or Pennywise's favorite post-cleanser pre-shape-shifting skincare product. I mean, how else is he supposed to keep up that sickly Victorian child glow? But in reality, Stormwater can be much scarier than Pennywise, depending on how much childhood trauma you have charged up from your plights with clowns. Stormwater, or water that comes from any form of precipitation, will either evaporate off of a level surface, or more commonly, will flow as runoff to another location. And when this water does run off to another location, it usually picks up its chunk of gunk along the way. An estimated 10 trillion gallons of untreated stormwater runoff containing everything from raw sewage to trash to toxins enters U.S. waterways from city sewer systems every year. That's enough water to fill 15.1 million Olympic-sized swimming pools, power Niagara Falls for 154 days, or wash away the sins of Trisha Paytas. And this stormwater carries with it a ripple effect that goes beyond the obvious effects of pollutants in our water bodies. It can cause stream impairment, flooding, fish and wildlife habitat loss, soil erosion, reduced groundwater levels, and more. So today, we'll discuss why stormwater poses a threat to the environment, economy, and human health, and how stormwater management can improve. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out The Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, a little Stormwater 101. When it rains, or when snow and ice melt... This collection of water can run into two types of surfaces, pervious and impervious surfaces. And no, that doesn't mean the surfaces are a little creepy. Pervious surfaces, like soil, turf, or sand, allow water to percolate into the ground to filter out pollutants and recharge the water table. These kind of surfaces tell the water, Look, man. You're pretty roughed up. You got fertilizers, cigarette butts, and the poop of all the neighborhood dogs in your system. Why don't you stay with me for a while? We'll clean you up, and you don't have to wreak havoc downstream. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Impervious surfaces, on the other hand, like asphalt, concrete, or stone, are solid surfaces that don't allow water to penetrate, forcing it to run off. Impervious surfaces tell the water, 
go, feral honey! Go skinny dipping in the ocean! Who cares if they call you toxic and everything you touch kinda smells bad afterwards? Don't stick around in this lame town! Go follow your dreams! With the rise of urbanization, and in turn, more impervious surfaces, this stormwater is running out of good friends to stop it from ending up in water bodies, or from getting into bar fights. And to be clear, I wasn't joking about the cigarette butts and dog poop from earlier. I was joking about the Pennywise skincare routine, though. Obviously, Pennywise uses Neutrogena Hydro Boost water gel. It's affordable, it's dermatologist-approved, and it's both gel consistency and lightweight? How do you beat that? Wait, it contains fragrance, which has unknown harmful chemicals? And a thickener derived from petroleum? <sighs> Never mind. But it's true. Storm water contains everything. Here's a laundry list of the things that end up in stormwater. Antifreeze, grease, oil, heavy metals, fertilizers, pesticides, bacteria, human and animal feces, sediment, microplastics, regular plastic, rubber, and probably anything else you can think of. The only things that aren't in stormwater are fragrance and a thickener derived from petroleum, so I guess that's something. So what happens when this concoction of goodies ends up in our lakes, rivers, and oceans? One issue is nutrient pollution. Nutrient pollution occurs when an overabundance of nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus enter the water system. High quantities of these nutrients can lead to an overgrowth of algae. Now, a bit of algae is normal in a lot of water bodies, but an overgrowth can present what we call harmful algal blooms, or HABs. Not to be confused with haunted apricot baths, which I'm sure marine life would much prefer. Red tides, blue-green algae, and cyanobacteria are examples of harmful algal blooms that can have severe impacts on the environment in a few ways. First, the toxins released from HABs can cause large-scale deaths of fish that work their way up the food web, impacting mammals, birds, and other wildlife that feed on grasses, shellfish, or fish tainted with toxins. Back in 2017, Texas experienced a major fish kill that devastated Lake Texoma, killing approximately 157,000 fish in just three days. Second, even non-toxic HABs can have detrimental impacts on aquatic ecosystems in the form of dead zones, areas in a water body with so little oxygen that aquatic life can't survive, or areas at a party where people are yelling about NFTs. When algae and bacteria in an algal bloom die, the decomposition process uses up most of the surrounding oxygen, causing other organisms in an affected water body to suffocate or be forced to relocate to survive. Scientists have identified 415 dead zones worldwide, and 166 of them can be found in or off the coast of the U.S., in fact, the second largest dead zone lies in the northern Gulf of Mexico, occupying a total of 6,354 square miles in 2021. And it used to be worse. Back in 2017, this dead zone covered 8,776 square miles, which is roughly the size of New Jersey. 
Thankfully, the fish in this zone have stopped ranting about the turnpike and bagels, so I guess we can look to the bright side. But it's no coincidence that the Mississippi River carries an estimated 1.5 million metric tons of nitrogen pollution into the Gulf of Mexico each year. That's almost double the volume of oil released into the Gulf from the BP Deepwater Horizon spill back in 2010, or half the oil used to fry literally anything at Raising Cane's. And the fish that do survive may face another threat, as University of Texas Austin's Dr. Peter Thomas explains. The females showed evidence of masculinization. We found sperm in the ovaries of some of the females. All those species that can't reproduce will disappear. This effect will cascade up the food web. And that, of course, will have a huge impact on the ecosystems. And Dr. Thomas's finding is really concerning. While a bunch of dead fish washing up on shore is an obvious sign that something isn't right, discoveries like the increasing masculinization of fish aren't as obvious to the eye. Dr. Thomas's findings specifically would lead to a lot of reproductive concerns, but seeing as this clip was from just three months ago, it also makes clear that we may not know every consequence of harmful algal blooms. And hard-to-see problems like these could have a huge impact on ecosystems in the present and future, and who knows how many weird dead zone-induced anomalies like this could go unseen. I mean, are the male fish going to start sliding into the female fish's DMs with, Hey, BB, looking good, boo. What would happen to fish populations then? So Dr. Thomas may have found another algal bloom issue here, but he also reminds us just how much more research needs to be done. Stormwater can also erode stream banks. Stream bank erosion occurs when the flow of water becomes too powerful for the banks of a creek or stream to contain. As a result, the water will carry sediment and debris from the stream bank into primary sources of water. While stream bank erosion is a natural and common phenomenon in communities with lakes, rivers, creeks, and streams, too much erosion can have negative effects on the ecosystem. And too much stream bank erosion is another symptom of those pesky impervious surfaces I mentioned earlier. Impervious surfaces speed up the flow of water into streams after storms, causing higher rates of this erosion. Stream bank erosion can cause a few issues. The fallen debris and soil in a creek or stream can change the flow's trajectory and vastly change the ecosystem. Fish may no longer be able to grow and thrive. Various plant life may not be able to keep up with the changing landscape. Wildlife can be displaced as they look for another source of food and water. And the land around creeks and streams can become a dangerous place to be as stream bank erosion occurs. When plants begin to disappear, their roots no longer hold soil into place, affecting soil health. As a result, the ground near streams becomes unstable and more prone to mudslides, landslides, or temper tantrums. And now, it's time for the reason Forbes named me Mood Killer of the Year, climate change. Actually, they haven't named me that yet, but I figure if I say it, I can will it into existence. I mean, that's the dream. 
First off, more frequent and intense rains caused by climate change can overwhelm the design capacity of municipal stormwater management systems. In Boston, for example, the current stormwater system can handle a rainstorm that drops about 5.15 inches of water in 24 hours. In the future, Boston could get that amount of rain or more in just a few hours. I mean, when I lived in Boston, I had three weatherman-grade umbrellas decimated just in normal rains. That is true. So imagining that getting worse is pretty scary. And in cities that combine their stormwater drainage with their sewage management, these overflows can become an even bigger problem. Listen to Riverkeeper's patrol boat captain John Lipscomb describe what's going on in New York City's Hudson River. That opening under the wall there, that's a combined sewer overflow. They have a sign up that it's says per, caution. It's, per, it's permitted. The city has said this is what we must do because we can't do better, and the state okays it. Those are state permits. And the EPA knows it, and the EPA is, of course, the federal agency that oversees all the states. So at every level of government, this is not a secret? Not a secret. Why is it not a scandal? Because most people don't know about it. John's Hudson River boat tour shines light on a few disturbing things. First, that is a missed opportunity for naming the boat tour. I mean, why not the sewage safari, the defecation exploration, the poop troop? John, call me after the show. Second, who thought it was a good idea to A, combine stormwater and sewage, and B, intentionally release this toxic power couple into our waterways. It's like releasing Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly, a toxic pairing in the first place, and now we all have to hear about the vial of blood and the ugliest engagement ring I've ever seen. While this merging of stormwater and sewage acts as a sort of last resort to prevent on-land flooding, increased storms due to climate change cause the release of sewage to become a much more frequent reality. And based on what John said, it sounds like we're not even close to being prepared for that. In New York City alone, about 20 billion gallons of this stormy, poopy mixture pour from nearly 450 outfalls every year. What's worse? Combined stormwater sewage systems are fairly common in this country, and clearly, given John's experience, governing bodies aren't that concerned about it. Nearly 860 municipalities across the United States use combined sewer systems instead of separate storm drains. If 20 billion gallons of sewage stormwater flow out of New York City alone, just imagine how large this number might be across 860 municipalities. On the other end of the spectrum, climate change causes longer droughts and more frequent and intense heat waves. While this may seem like it could counteract the stormwater problem, it actually does the opposite. Kinda like putting soap on a stain. You may think it will help, but boy are you in for an irreversible ride. Stormwater quality can be adversely affected by projected changes to the intervening dry period between rainfall events. 
longer dry periods will increase the accumulation of particulates and toxic pollutants on urban impervious surfaces. One 2020 study, for example, found that 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius warming can increase toxic pollutant loads by more than 90% on urban surfaces and by nearly 50% in stormwater runoff. And stormwater doesn't just affect the environment, it also affects the economy. Faulty or old stormwater management infrastructure can greatly increase the frequency and intensity of flooding, which, like a metal detector at a concert, can really empty our pockets. The number of people worldwide affected by flooding will double in 10 years, and the economic flooding impact will more than triple, according to the World Resources Institute. Another study of 729,999 commercial and residential properties in the United States found that flooding will cost businesses nearly $50 billion in 2022. Watch out, Elon Musk. Stormwater can outbid you for Twitter. And it's not just flooding. Due to nutrient pollution and algal blooms, the tourism industry loses close to a billion dollars each year mostly through losses in fishing and boating activities. Listen to Irene Gomez, a motel owner in Florida, explain how algal blooms in 2016 affected her business. The goopy blue-green algae blooms have turned many Southeast Florida waterways into a thick, poisonous soup. It's just putrid. I mean, it just, it just gags you. Would you swim in this? No way. I, put, I wouldn't even put my foot in it. Irene Gomes, owner of the Driftwood Motel in Jensen Beach, says the blooms are the worst she's ever seen and scaring away her customers. How much business have you lost in the last few days? Well, just from one uh, group of relatives that were coming in together, it was $1,000. As a business owner, you have to be able to sell your product. And the only family a beach of putrid poisonous soup will attract is the Adams family. While $1,000 might not sound like the biggest deal after I was just rattling off numbers in the billions, that is a heavy blow for many small business owners. I mean, it was big enough to be in the news. And that was just one group of relatives. If stormwater-induced algal blooms keep plaguing our coastlines and waterways, Irene's Motel and countless other businesses could risk having to close up shop. And it's not just tourism that's affected. In 2011, a super bloom in Florida resulted in a 60% loss of seagrass coverage. And as we've talked about before, seagrass loss is a major economic hit due to the ecosystem services it provides. And on the West Coast, a 2015 toxic bloom caused a $97.5 million loss to crab and clam fisheries. That means we could have more and more newsworthy stories like Irene's all over the country. And certainly, in addition to all the businesses and families this would affect, toxic green sludge is not the most fun thing to watch on TV in the morning. Stormwater can also affect human health. Stormwater-contaminated beach water sickens an estimated 3.5 million people per year nationwide, causing rashes, hepatitis, and gastrointestinal illness. One study estimated that in Los Angeles alone, stormwater runoff causes $119 million to $278 million in health costs annually. And when I first heard that, I said, wait a second, 
Los Angeles? Rain? What is this, opposite day? Are they talking about raining cars or raining oat milk or something? But it's true. Even with Los Angeles' estimated 14 inches of rainfall per year, the whole city is like one impervious surface, so stormwater still racks up a massive medical bill. Another health problem occurs when stormwater pollutes our drinking water. Take this news story from 2014, after a massive algal bloom in Lake Erie called for a state of emergency in Toledo, Ohio. The city of Toledo, for the second straight day, is under a state of emergency with no usable tap water. Since yesterday morning, you know, the individuals are coming from all over the city, you know, all over different suburbs, different cities. Nearly a half million people in and around the city, all the way up to parts of neighboring Michigan, have tap water tainted by a toxin from Lake Erie. Residents were not able to drink tap water, wash dishes, or brush their teeth because of a toxin in the drinking water. I don't think many of us think of stormwater when we think of breaking news, but whether it's economic impacts from the last clip or health impacts from this clip, stormwater is having a big effect on people. And while missed tourism is one thing, it's pretty much impossible to go through an entire day with no clean water, even if you exclusively drink blue Powerade. But when a story like this one is so local, it makes sense why the rest of the country might not be aware of it. Even if they are, they likely won't remember eight years later. Stormwater is creating these horrific consequences, leading to actual news stories which can't always be said for environmental issues. But it's still not talked about a lot in the environmental world, unless everyone else is talking about it behind my back and I'm just not finding out it's trendy, though I'm guessing not. Maybe it is just a case of these stories being so local. But with climate change worsening these already scary issues, it may be worth bringing this topic into the spotlight a bit more. But it's tricky, right? We can't tear up every impervious surface. We can't control the weather, unless Al Roker can figure that out. We can't scare stormwater off if it voluntarily hangs out with Pennywise. So what can we do? One approach is to look at agricultural practices that might limit the amount of pollutants in stormwater. Right now, a lot of farmers use excessive amounts of fertilizers that not only flow into water bodies via stormwater, but also reduce soil health, which can then mean farmers need even more fertilizer to grow crops, and the cycle continues. Regenerative practices that improve soil health can help to capture rain where it falls, instead of allowing nutrient-packed runoff to wash into bodies of water. These practices include planting cover crops, diversifying what's grown, reducing tillage, properly applying compost and manure, and following fertilizer best practices. A lot of these things cost money up front, but they can at the very least save money on stormwater management, and on top of that, they can help mitigate climate change, and they can have long-term economic benefits for the farmers. For example, if you're using less fertilizer or reusing manure, you end up saving money down the line, so governments could incentivize or invest in these practices and create a win-win for everyone. Another option is improving stormwater infrastructure to meet today's requirements. 
Now, there's two types of infrastructure in the case of stormwater management, gray and green. Traditional gray stormwater infrastructure is designed to move urban stormwater away from the built environment by using curbs, gutters, drains, piping, collection systems, and an unsanitary three-year-old who found a bendy straw. This infrastructure then diverts stormwater into a series of piping that ultimately discharges treated or untreated stormwater into a local water body. While gray infrastructure has immediate benefits when designed correctly, it very often isn't. In 2017, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave a D-plus grade on U.S. stormwater and sewage systems. That's the grade you get when you're actually failing, but your professor feels a little bad for you. Maybe you babysat their kid one time or something. So getting gray infrastructure up to par would take a lot of time, money, and engineering students quitting their Magic the Gathering addictions and showing up to class. Oh, who am I kidding? They're the only students who show up to class. But another option cities across the country are trying that could be more reliable is green infrastructure. Green infrastructure is designed to mimic nature and capture rainwater where it falls. In the context of stormwater, green infrastructure can take the form of rain gardens, stormwater planters, green roofs, swales, porous pavings, wetlands, and more. The thing about green infrastructure is that it comes with multifaceted environmental, economic, and social benefits that gray infrastructure can't provide, save the one time you found a spare 20 in your gutter. That's why Ed Comfair, a senior program manager of Resiliency at Engineering and Land Planning Associates, suggests green infrastructure is the way to go. So in green infrastructure, you have bioretention systems, you have flowering plants, you have trees that can offer shade. They happen throughout the site and kind of can create a real aesthetic visual impact. So we don't want to just design for today, but we want to design for the future. And I think that following the lead of Nature and the way natural systems work is the best way to do that. That's right, Instagrammers. Break out that Clarendon filter because green infrastructure is aesthetic. But Ed makes a good point. Green infrastructure offers a lot of benefits. Through a water retention lens, it prevents runoff by capturing rain where it falls, allowing it to filter into the earth and replenish groundwater, return to the atmosphere through evapotranspiration, or be reused for another purpose, such as landscaping. And through a water quality lens, green infrastructure decreases the amount of stormwater that reaches waterways and removes contaminants from the water that does. Soil and plants also help capture and remove pollutants from stormwater in a variety of ways, including adsorption, filtration, plant uptake, and the decomposition of organic matter. And green infrastructure's benefits extend far beyond stormwater as well. The CDC found that urban forests can reduce local air temperatures by up to 9 degrees Fahrenheit, which helps reduce urban heat islands. And studies have found that walking past green spaces lowers heart rates, reduces stress, heightens short-term memory, and can even reduce the symptoms of clinical depression. So Lexapro's met its match. 
Green infrastructure obviously isn't perfect either, and our gentrification episode shared some important consequences of it. But given all of this, you can certainly see why an expert like Ed would be this excited about green infrastructure. Of course, none of these solutions are a perfect answer, and that's why it's also probably worth, one, trying multiple solutions simultaneously rather than just gray or just green, and two, listening to the communities who are most affected to learn what they want. Urban communities, and particularly neighborhoods that are majority people of color or low income, tend to be disproportionately paved over, with fewer parks, open spaces, and other permeable surfaces. Stormwater isn't just about runoff into oceans, bays, and streams. For the communities that have largely been paved over, it can be the source of flooding or disease. So these communities likely will have a useful perspective on this issue, as well as potential solutions. I mentioned gentrification because the last thing you want is for a solution to work so well that it drives up rents and the current community members are pushed out after having been the ones who dealt with the problem. While it may not be possible to entirely prevent unintended consequences, listening to the community and working with them can certainly go a long way toward making sure solutions are their most effective. Knowing this state of stormwater today, and how climate change threatens to make it worse, I know this may have been more overwhelming than you expected. But if people know about this issue and we work at it, we really can get it under control. And a lot of people stand to benefit if we do. Farmers, fishermen, business owners, government officials, and everyday people who want clean drinking water and their tax dollars to not have to inevitably clean up overflowing sewage. Not to mention so many solutions also save money, also protect our health, also help the environment and climate in ways completely unrelated to the stormwater issue. And that's pretty cool too. Certainly a lot better than the best tourism on the Hudson River being the defecation exploration. Do you wish there were an animal that looked as intimidating as soft cardboard but could kill you in seconds? If so, manta rays are for you. With manta rays, you can make your kid's trip to the aquarium ridiculously awkward by saying, Hey Bobby, go touch it! Unfortunately, manta rays primarily dine on seagrass, which is under threat due to climate change, so you better take advantage of this offer right now. Manta rays, cause Ray Romano can't be the only ray that everybody loves. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Mitchell Pavau-Zuckerman, Associate Professor of Environmental Science and Technology at the University of Maryland. Dr. Pavau-Zuckerman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me. First off, tell us a bit about your background and what led to your interest in stormwater and water management. I started off being trained as an ecosystem ecologist, but I had done a bit of sort of human ecology work as an undergraduate as well. So I was looking for research questions that let me merge kind of human environments with the ecological questions that I had about sort of how structures of ecosystems affect 
what kind of interactions and functions and process they had. So urban questions came to me. Um, so how does ecology happen in cities? And I got really interested in stormwater when I was working in the Southwest where water is really scarce, but managing water in cities is kind of important, but also a little bit different than how we would do it in a more music or kind of in a city that has more water in it. Started looking at stormwater management as a way of merging ecology, human environmental management, and uh, kind of questions about how people kind of live with nature around them. I think it's worth saying to start that this sounds like a very urban issue on face value, something local governments would want to explore. But after doing a little reading, it seems like stormwater management strategies can actually be implemented at individual households. So would you say this is a topic that everyone should be engaged in? Definitely, it's something that everyone should be engaged with because what happens at our houses and in our yards effectively becomes the headwaters for a lot of streams and river systems. So the drainage that comes off of our yards drains into the streams and rivers that we're interested in. I think climate change is one of the big reasons why better water management is so important, in part because of these increasing droughts. I believe there's more transpiration with warmer temperatures too. So do you feel like we have the technology and know-how to conserve enough water in these drought-stricken regions when climate change is worsening droughts more? Or do you expect we'd have to reach for, I see a lot of these ideas like desalination, water pipelines, would we ever have to reach that far? Or do we know how to do this? It's possible that we'll have to reach that far, depending on the balance of water use for different sectors. So in the Southwest, you may have existing interest in agriculture for water, uh, water kind of consumption, but also growing populations. And to meet the demand that we have as we start to implement new technologies to reduce water consumption at maybe the household level or practices in the field, it's still potentially um, necessary to reach for those more kind of creative solutions like desalinization, especially in like large population centers. There's also a lot to be concerned about on the other extreme of climate change. Heavy rains, be it tropical storms or monsoons, can erode soil. They can create a lot of runoff. And certainly that water is really hard to conserve. Monsoons in particular are coupled with dry seasons, which makes that important. So how do we deal with that water and how does it change depending on the climate that you're in? Well, we can think of that water in different ways, depending on where we are and how we're using it. So in a monsoon setting, one of the things that we look at with using green infrastructure for water harvesting is that it potentially can help us establish plants or establish trees and shrubs early on so that they're able to um, withstand drought later in life. So by capturing water when it comes in in these large pulses, you might think we wouldn't be able to support those plants over the rest of the year or growing season. But if we really do well at kind of capturing and targeting that water when they really need it, they're able to survive through their own adaptations throughout the rest of the year or kind of the rest of their lifespan once they get that jump start. And I think the plant piece is interesting. I think a lot of people can kind of get the perception at first that if we're giving more water to plants, that's less water for people, but plants can actually kind of help conserve some of that water through the dry season. So what would be your take on that? Absolutely. Plants play a really 
critical role in regulating water in built environments and natural ecosystems. So the presence of um, trees can help shade the environment. They can also cool things down a little bit through transpiration, which actually cools the environment around leaves. And all of that would help to reduce water evaporation from soils. We may also see that the leaves from trees as they fall to the ground and form like a litter layer around them can also serve as a kind of mulch to help keep water in the ground. So trees give a great kind of feedback to help conserve water. They're able to kind of keep it in place. The other important aspect is that stormwater runoff can very easily lead to water pollution. Any number of materials can leach into stormwater and end up in our waterways. So first off, who would you say that issue falls on? Is it on the companies with toxic waste sites or the farmers using fertilizers and pesticides to take preventative measures? Or is it on folks in water management to figure out how to keep stormwater out of these important bodies of water to the best ability they can? I would say that it falls on everyone. It really takes an integrated approach to deal with those issues because they're really happening at the scale of an ecosystem or a watershed. So all of those different types of land users and landowners that you've talked about and managers, they all play a different role. So we can work together between stormwater managers and farmers, for example, to develop nutrient management practices that help reduce the release of nitrogen and phosphorus from farm fields. At the same time, we can work with residents and municipalities to develop practices to try to keep those same pollutants in urban systems rather than leaking out to streams as well. So when we're looking at, say, the overall health of a water body like the Chesapeake Bay, where I am now in Maryland, all of the activity throughout that entire watershed contributes to what we're seeing in the bay itself. So everyone's got to play a part. And I think it's interesting because in addition to harming an aquatic ecosystem directly via whatever pollutants are in the stormwater, stormwater runoff can also erode stream banks. And that too can have a profound effect. And I was intrigued because this sounds like something that would also happen naturally. Without human intervention, we'd still have rain, we'd still have runoff. So what do we need to know about this erosion? Is it a concern either way, or are we actually affecting it beyond whatever would be natural? Well, we are affecting it in a way that enhances that in kind of urban and suburban landscapes. So one of the things to think about is that when we develop these landscapes, they're going to have an impact on those pollutants that you mentioned and talked about, but they're also going to affect the speed that water moves through that system. So by increasing the amount of hardscape like roads and buildings and decreasing the amount of space that has a soil layer that water can kind of infiltrate in or plants that are going to slow down the effect of rainfall as it comes through, we're basically making the hydrologic system work more quickly. So water moves through that landscape faster. That speed of that water then increases the rate of erosion and can cut stream banks as the water comes through in large kind of bursts and just basically like scours through. We don't necessarily see that in ecosystems that have a good plant canopy, a good soil cover. So by changing that environment, we're really speeding up the rate at which erosion happens. So in terms of how concretely we would implement 
these types of stormwater management strategies. First off, I saw that you with uh, some other team members were winners of the EPA's 2015 Campus Rainworks Challenge. Congrats on that. But do you want to tell us a bit about maybe that project, what types of designs you implemented? And I guess you can also talk more broadly what kinds of steps we can take to better manage stormwater. Sure. So thanks for that recognition. Um, That was a fun project working with some landscape design students. And part of the process for that is taking a sort of holistic approach that looks at the site you're trying to improve, but its position within a broader water system. So some of the things that might be of concern are trying to retain water on site so that it doesn't move off as quickly, or some of that concern might be trying to implement structures that are going to be able to help retain nutrients on site. So we're talking about both managing water quality and water quantity. So the process usually involves doing some sort of site visit and site characterization to say, what's the status of that kind of ecosystem itself? Is it healthy? Are the soils compacted? Are there already plants there? Um, But then we would also start looking at other aspects that are related to how does that piece of land fit into the broader watershed? How does water flow into it and out of it? Are there any other concerns that we might have? So the places that we worked at for that project were locations on campus at the University of Maryland, where there was also interest in preserving spaces for students to be able to have recreational activities or places to just sort of like sit and chill out among trees. There's interest in promoting some habitat for native species like butterflies. So being able to kind of integrate all of those different aspects into one design while kind of keeping water at the center point of that, that's a lot of what that project is involved with. So the design team is a team. It's made up of a couple of different people with different backgrounds and expertise that come together to give you that overall picture of what we can do. Your stormwater brought up a lot in the context of urban green space and nature-based solutions. And we've actually done an episode on urban green space. And part of that, we were looking at how urban green space is very often disproportionately not located in low-income and minority communities within an urban area. We also did a gentrification episode where we talked about (laughs) when they are put there, very often that can lead to some issues. Um, Do these sorts of social issues, economic issues come up in your research and what would be your take on them in the context of stormwater? Yeah, it's definitely becoming a growing part of how most of us are thinking about stormwater within our, our research questions, but also the implications of the work that we're doing. Because as you said, the communities that are often already marginalized are kind of feeling a bigger effect of the environmental harms that come from um, stormwater issues, that come from flooding issues related to the stormwater flows. So thinking about how design can be done in a way that integrates what the communities they're located within are thinking about or have desires um, around what their sort of interests are with respect to what things look like or how they're designed, that they have a role in voicing those kinds of concerns are a big part of how stormwater management needs to proceed. Looking ahead, obviously, there's a lot of cool design ideas out there. 
What would your message be to policymakers? What should they know about this issue? And are there any steps that they could take today to improve stormwater management in whether it be cities or at a broader scale? I think one of the most important things to think about now is that the stormwater practices that we're putting in place are going to be in our landscapes for decades to come. So we really have to start thinking about what the effects of climate change are on our ecosystems now, but also what they'll look like in 20, 30, 40 years. And often what we're seeing is that the systems that are in place now have been undersized compared to what we expect rain events to look like in the future. Um, So really trying to look at the connection between what we think future climate will look like, what rain patterns will look like, what extreme events will look like, and how we design green infrastructure and stormwater management now is a really important way of thinking about how to adapt to those changes as they come to us in the future. Dr. Pavel Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you very much, Ethan. It's great chatting with you. This wraps up episode 82 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from The Economist, CBS Mornings, NBC News Learn, and ENLP Associates. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. 